0: Thank you for listening to the Calvary Monterey podcast. Please visit calvary.com to learn more about our church. And visit nateholdridge.com for additional Bible teaching from our lead pastor, Nate Holdridge. Teaching today is our assistant pastor, Jeff Buck. Hi there, welcome to Tuesday Night Bible Study here at Calvary Monterey. I am Pastor Jeff Buck, one of the assisting pastors here. I am filling in for our lead pastor who's away, Nate Holdridge. And I'm happy to be in the second of a series of four studies as I'm filling in as we go through one of the great books of the New Testament, the book of Colossians. We're going to be in Colossians chapter 2, verses 1 through 23. And so let me take a moment to uh, summarize and then we'll pray and we'll forge ahead into the next study. So reviewing, as I mentioned last time, Colossians is such a, an interesting book, uh, a Pauline letter, of course. But as I mentioned, there are 55 different words he uses in his Greek uh, penmanship that uh, he did not use in any other of the 12 uh, epistles. I, the word qualified in chapter 1, verse 12 is not used other places. Fine-sounding arguments in 2, 4, and empty deceit in as I mentioned last week. The record of debt, which is nailed to the cross, which is the law, 2.14. And the word asceticism in 2.18 and other places. The severe self-discipline of the body, supposing uh, to squash um, lusts and, and wrong passions. The effect of reading, as I said, Colossians, can be that you simply fall in love again with Christ. We got to stay in that wonderful, fresh relationship with him. And certain books of the Bible like this, uh, they stoke the fire of our relationship with Christ. I think one of the reasons that Paul uses all these different Greek words uh, is not just that it's high Christology. He's teaching some very deep things about Christ, but also to use an automotive uh, word. He just busts a gasket. He just blows the engine. He's, he's in bragging about who Christ is. He uses words he doesn't use uh, in other epistles. Uh, the usual pattern, as I mentioned last week, um, chapters one through two, what Christ has done, three and four, what Christians should do. And so we focus on who we are before what we do and what we become. The purpose uh, was to combat a heresy that was happening in Colossae that uh, never is actually named. As I mentioned, it was kind of a syncretism, a blending of legalism, asceticism, and mysticism, things that get the person off the centrality of Christ and the person of Christ. The themes, the four themes that uh, really... uh, smack you if you really (laughs) listen to it and and catch it, is Christ is God. Christ is the head of the church. Christ in you is living out for the glory. And Christ will live uh, his life through you. Christ in you living then through you. That Christ in you, by the way, is a, we're indebted to Paul for, being very clear about that. In Ephesians 3, Colossians 1, that Christ is going to live inside you. Now, Christ means Messiah, and Jews everywhere were looking for this coming Redeemer. But I don't think any of them were looking for a Redeemer that was going to hop inside of them by the Holy Spirit. So it's a, a wonderful book, and um, we're going to jump into the second chapter. So let's take a moment to pray that having reviewed that God would open this new material to us and us to it. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word. Thank you for the life of your servant, Paul, and the production of this wonderful book. And as we see Paul setting the stage now to more definitely confront heresy, open our eyes to the heresies that we have to combat. And may we behold wonderful things from your law in Jesus name. Amen. I'm going to read some of the verses from the first chapter and then backtrack and we'll comment on them. In the second chapter, we read these words for, I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you. And for those at Laodicea, a few miles away, And for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, Christ, in whom, in Christ, are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge." I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments for though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith. I wish that could be said about all churches that they would enjoy firmness of faith and good order. And in six Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus, so Lord, so walk in him. And notice the the, the solid words here. Rooted, built up in him, and established in the faith. That you were taught and see to it that you abound in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy. And empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, interesting phrase, and not according to Christ. So here we see him, especially in the first three verses, he's setting the stage. He is going to begin now to get out the machine gun and, and begin to fire away at this syncretism, at these. Additions to the Christian faith that are going to dumb it down and divert it from the the passionate commitment to Christ. In that first verse, I want you to see how great a struggle I have for you and those at Laodicea and all those who have not seen me face to face. I pointed out last week that Paul had never been to Colossae, but one of the uh, citizens of, of that city. Uh, Epaphras was led to Christ and became uh, an apostolic representative of them. But Paul uh, never was there. But he says, how great a struggle I have for you. Now, that's interesting because Paul is in prison. This is one of the prison epistles about 60, 61 AD, and he's in prison in Rome. And yet it says, I am struggling for you and those at Laodicea and all those I've never met. So even in prison, he's in the war. He's not counting himself out. He's not getting depressed. He's not getting under the situation and circumstances. He says, I am struggling. Now, what's interesting is, as this is being recorded, Uh, we're in the time when the Olympics are going to be happening, and we think about the Olympic Games and all of that. And this word here, struggle, is the Greek word agon and uh, we would get the word agony from it. It's actually, the agon was the arena for the Olympic, the Olympic games. Uh, the place of battle and conflict and struggle. And he said, it's like I'm in that arena. <clears throat> it's like I'm, I'm struggling for you. And I'm thinking about you. And I'm, I'm sweating bullets. Lest you be taken away from the simplicity of Christ, as he says in another place. And so I love several things about this particular verse, Um, the struggle. You know, sometimes in the Christian life, it is a struggle. We we are in a battle of conflict. And especially here, he's speaking of right doctrine and standing up for Christ and not letting other people divert you from that understanding of him. But notice it says, for all who have not seen my face. I have a burden, he's saying. I'm struggling for people I've never met. Now, that's the heart of missions. That's the heart. I once worked in a, for an organization between pastorates. And the theme of the organization was reach the unreached, teach the untaught. <laughs> our, our founder said, that's, that's my vision. Reach the unreached, teach the untaught. You know, when you gain a heart for the gospel, you automatically begin to gain a heart for those you've never met. I think of all the places when I was younger and I was traveling into so many places I'd never been before. Eastern Europe and uh, uh, Soviet Union and uh, various places and you'd go in and you'd and you start relating to people you'd never been there before you didn't, didn't know the people and you had a burden in a heart that you gained a little bit before you were there as you were praying and then you fall in love with those people you carry them in your heart but it began before you even knew them and that's the heart of missions i think of two families that used to attend here, the Ballocks and the Simersons. They are missionaries as we speak, waiting for the open door to go into their respective closed countries that I can't name. They've never been to these places. They don't know the people, but like Paul, they are willing to struggle. They are willing to be in the agon for people that they've never met. And for you to look it up and a map, and think about continents, and people groups, and ethnic groups, and have a heart for that. That's something that God gave it to Paul, and he gives it to you. And I just want to say, I wonder if, as we're reading about Paul struggling for those he'd never seen face-to-face, I wonder if God might speak to someone listening today to what I'm saying. Might God call you to be a pastor or a missionary to go to a place you've never been before? That's something that may resound in you as I'm speaking. And I just want to encourage you, this is the heart of Paul. Even sitting in a jail, thinking about the unreached and the untaught. I hope you're like that too. And notice why he's struggling. What he wants to have happen in these people. This is so interesting. In verse 2, that their hearts may be encouraged. That their hearts may be encouraged and that they be knit together in love. Love and encouragement. Real ministry brings encouragement. That word encourage, parakaleo, means to call near to admonish, to comfort, to strengthen. Whether we're praying that it happens or we are bringing it ourselves, we want to be an encouragement everywhere we go in our, as a representative of Christ. And not only encouragement, he said, knit together in love. When I see those words, I think of community. I think not only of just involvement in a church family that becomes community to to us. But I think about how Paul, if you've read in the book of Acts, if you've read the end of Romans 16 and various places, Paul lived in community constantly and incessantly. He was an unmarried man, but he would always travel with seven or eight people. And it was so interesting when Paul would be brought to someone's house to stay, he would have, you know, five, six, seven other people with him. Imagine being the host for eight people one night when Paul comes in Paul lived in community. Paul believed in community. Paul knew the essential nature of it. And so I encourage you that same way, that your heart might be encouraged as you follow Christ, that you might allow yourself to be knit together in love into the body of Christ. And further on, more more theological here, to reach all the riches of full assurance and of understanding and the knowledge of Christ, of God's mystery, which is Christ. He is saying here, because he's just about to take aim directly at this false doctrine, he is saying, I want you to continue to grow. I want you to have the assurance that you understand right. I want you to have the assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, Christ. Paul was all about us not knowing just about Christ, but knowing Christ, the knowledge of Christ. That's why this particular book, especially chapters one and two is so dense because we are getting the knowledge of Christ, uh, straight up unfiltered, undiluted. He's saying that you might have the full assurance of understanding the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. And in verse three, Now this would have been an important thing for the Colossians because they were in uh, Greece and Greece was the place that prided itself on all these doctrines and so on uh, that were apart from Jesus. And he says, the in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, wisdom and knowledge. Where is wisdom and knowledge hidden? It's hidden in Christ. So if you want deep wisdom, deep knowledge, where do you go to the encyclopedia, to the internet? Well, among other things, and first and foremost, in Christ are hidden the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, which tells me that I've got to dig, which tells me I've got to be a student, which tells me that if I want treasures, I mean, wisdom and and knowledge are such treasures, I'm going to have to dig. I do think back to going to a secular university, but certain classes were such a treasure. Certain classes that talked about subjects that you know, interested me and fascinated me and so on. Oh, it was a treasure to sit in that class. And I would see other people fall asleep and leave early and so on. But you know, in some of these classes, I remember the wisdom and the knowledge, even in a secular university, but how much more when you sit in a, in a Bible study, a small group, a life group, a, a church service, and wisdom and knowledge about Christ is flowing, and it is such a treasure. And I hope it's always like that to you. Now, in verses four through seven, there's the first hint of heresy that really requires focus on Christ. Because in verse four, he says, I say this about getting those treasures of wisdom and knowledge. In order that no one may delude you or deceive you with plausible arguments. No one may delude you, deceive you. And we know from First Thessalonians, Second Thessalonians, other first John, how deception will be so powerful and rampant in the last days, and people will be drawn away from the simplicity and purity of Christ. And he says, I say this so that no one may delude who? You. Speaking to the church at Colossae, but also to you. No one may delude you with plausible arguments. See, sometimes things that people say, especially if you let down your guard, may seem plausible. They may seem, well, yeah, I guess that that could be right. That could be something. In these days of progressive Christianity, so much about Christ is being dumbed down and put away. And his Godhead, his divinity, his authority, the authority of scripture with plausible arguments that some people are, are suckered into believing. He says, oh, don't be deluded. And he says, for though I am absent in body, verse 5, and he's commending them now, as he's beginning to load the gun, he's, he's commending them. For though I'm absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit. I, I, I love you even though I'm going to get uh, a little down on you here. Uh, I am absent in body, but uh, I'm with you in spirit, rejoicing to see, as I mentioned earlier, your good order and the firmness of your faith. So it, it's always good to put a little sugar with the salt. It's always good to, um, to build that bridge. So he's commending them. He's never been there. He's, he's going to be giving an authoritative uh, doctrinal rebuke. And so he, he builds that bridge with them, how important that is to do. And then in verse 6. I love this verse. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus, the Lord, so walk in him. You know, it's interesting. That phrase, Christ Jesus, the Lord, this is the only time those exact four words occur in the Greek New Testament. Christ Jesus, the Lord. There's the Lord Jesus Christ, and there's uh, Lord Jesus and all kinds of other things. But his, his... His authority here, Christ, Jesus, the Lord. This is a unique uh, construction here. And he says, now you received Christ, Jesus, the anointed savior, the Lord. You received him. You made the good confession. You said in your mouth, Jesus is Lord. And you believed in your heart that God raised him from the dead. And so you were saved. Romans 10, 9 and 10. You receive Christ Jesus, the Lord. So walk in him. Stay in him. Don't get off the path. You received him. Walk in him. Walk in him. Keep yourself on that him path. Rooted and built up in him. And established in the faith. Those words related to Jesus, rooted, built up, and established in the faith, the general Christian faith, and specifically faith in Jesus, just as you were taught. It's important to know that new teaching comes around all the time. But we who have been taught accurately the evangelical truth of scripture have to continue to go just as we were taught. Fancy new doctrines, things that seem attractive, things that seem modern and uh, applicable to young people and so on. He said, be careful. Rooted, built up, established just as you were taught. Stick with the, the, the basic evangelical teaching that you have received, he said. And it's interesting, he then adds a little sentence. Abounding in thanksgiving. Now, I find it interesting that that's there. It doesn't exactly seem to fit uh, the moment. But see, thanksgiving is something that keeps us solid. Keeps us rooted. Keeps us built up. Cultivating a thankful heart at all times. I think you can thank your way out of almost anything when you give thanksgiving to God. And in prison, he is simply saying, abounding in thanksgiving. And I think that's because he lived that way himself, abounding in thanksgiving. So that's the first hint of heresy. Now we're going to have the first real blast in verses 8 through 15 to combat this unnamed doctrine. In verse 8, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world and not according to Christ. So he's... Now he's mentioning names. He says philosophy. We know what philosophy is. Empty deceit. He doesn't doesn't define that. But, you know, some of the things that deceive people, they're so empty. They're so foolish. They're so not, obviously not true. And yet he says some people fall for empty deceit. According to human tradition. So human tradition the way things people have always done things, the way grandma always said, whatever, whatever. Sometimes if you look at what you've been taught in traditions, some of them are biblical and some are not. You can never disrespect traditions, but it doesn't mean that every human tradition that you were raised on, that you have to follow. And it's interesting you know, every, uh, well, the average church member now has multiple teachers. We have teachers from the internet. We have teachers from books. We have teachers on the, the radio and, and so on. And we're hearing a lot of different things, lots more than even the people of this time would have, would have known. If you abound in thanksgiving, like I said, that'll help you avoid heresy, keeping your mind on Christ. But but he, again, uses this word, um, let no one take you captive and, and deceive you by human tradition and according to the elemental spirits of the world. So you think, know, well, okay, what is that? What, is, what are the elemental spirits of the world which are not according to Christ? Well, I'm 67, and I've lived through a number of different phases, and I've been to a number of places where it's easy to see what the elemental spirits of the world are. And at the the risk of starting some controversy, I think uh, places like San Francisco, places like Santa Cruz, where there is a, a saying, for example, in Santa Cruz, keep Santa Cruz weird. Well, I've lived long enough to know that the basic thing that's, that operates and motivates kind of like a, a wave that comes through town and through the people, it goes right back to the 60s and 70s to the, uh, the hippie movement. And many, many people in Northern California have enshrined those days and want to stay right there. And some of the styles that I remember of dress in the, in the 60s and 70s. Um, I'm going to talk about this more in a few minutes as I get further in. But when you go certain places, when you go to the Northeast, you go to a place like Boston. And it's this highly intellectual thing. And the church has such a difficult time in the Northeast because of this oppressive intellectual power. Then that's the elemental spirit of that place, of that world, of intellectual uh, skepticism. And so he says, now watch out. Um, some of these traditions, like in Santa Cruz, can be really fun and it can be really fun to walk down Pacific and, and uh, you know, go barefoot and so on. But there's also things in the overall atmosphere that may be, like it says, not according to Christ. You be sure that culturally and in, and in all things, you are staying in according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Now that's a shot across the bow. Because he's saying these other philosophies and philosophers and teachers and in the empty deceit human traditions, they they're they don't have what Christ had. The whole fullness of the Godhead dwelt in a man. Now the Greeks, for example, didn't believe that God and man could ever exist together in a body. They, they believed that flesh was, was evil, had to be subdued and so on, at least some Greeks. But here it says, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. God was incarnated in a man. And this perfect man walked the perfect life, we know the gospel message, he, he lived the perfect life, died the sinner's death, and then extends to us eternal life. And Paul is insisting what's in Christ, everything, everything you need, the fullness of God walked and lived and still does in Christ. If you want fullness, if you want life, you want satisfaction, you don't find it in cultures and and all the different things that go on with these elemental things in different parts of the world. For in him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And then in verse 10, it gets really interesting. And you have been filled in him. You have been filled in him. When Christ comes into you, he brings the fullness of God into you. You're not God as Jesus is God, but there's a a new nature. There's a new way of thinking. There's a new power. There's a new authority. There's a, a new ability to walk a supernatural walk with God. Because you have been filled in him who is himself. And here's some good doctrine. He is the head of all rule and authority. We are told to respect the government in every nation, and, and so I, I have that belief. But the head of all rule and authority, what's above them, is Christ. And in the book of Revelation, And in 1 Corinthians 15, 20 through 28, we have this wonderful story of how Christ one day will subdue all earthly authority to himself and then turn and subdue himself and all of that to God. But when you get Christ, you have the fullness of God through him coming into you in some measure who is the head of all rule and authority. And I love the word filled. It's really great to have A cup that's filled, a plate that's filled, a room that's filled. And that's what you get when you get Christ. You get the infilling of the Spirit in all good things. And verse 11, he talks about uh, circumcision. He says, in him also, you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. So he's not talking about the circumcision of the, of the male reproductive organ. He's saying in the New Testament, in Christ, there is a circumcision, it'll, he'll say it, of your heart. A circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. In other words, cut out of us is that uh, Adamic nature, the, the old man, uh, we, we still battle with him because of uh, we still have a physical body and we still have temptations that we face. But there's been a, a cutting out a part of that so that we have a new nature in Christ. And he, and he likens it now to baptism. He says, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. When you went into the, the river or the tank or whatever it was where you were water baptized, you came out believing I'm a new person. There's been a circumcision of my heart. There's been a change of me in the root. And I believe in the powerful working of God who raised Jesus from the dead. When I came out of the, the water of, of baptism in an, in an old muddy lake in Missouri... I believed I was coming forth, not yet perfected, but new. And I was uh, signifying my repentance was full by, by falling back in that water, saying I'm dead to my past. And, oh, it was a powerful thing. I, I, and people, of course, when we do baptisms right here at Calvary Monterey, they always rejoice. Everybody knows instinctively there's something special about water baptism and it and it's like a it's like a death burial and resurrection it's like a funeral for the old man and he goes on to say in the 13 now he's talking about the emphatic deity of Christ our fullness of him in him the fullness of God in him and you, verse 13, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. You needed some things removed from, from, from you. God made alive. You, God made alive together with him. You're alive in a new way because you're joined with Christ. Made alive together with him. And this next phrase, having forgiven us all our trespasses. Philosophy can't do that. Fine sounding arguments can't do that. Human tradition can't do that. The elemental spirits of the world can't do that. We are forgiven all our trespasses. So often in counseling, I deal with people who just cannot forgive or let God forgive them from things in their past. And this is really interesting because it says in Christ, in are joining with him in baptism and faith in him. We are having been forgiven all our trespasses. How does that work? By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with his legal demands, the Old Testament Mosaic law. By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal means. Now, when you're in debt and you have a record of debt I owe this person this, I owe that person that. Oh, I owe this person a lot. And he said, all that's canceled and forgiven, this record of debt, all the different things. I didn't obey this rule in the Old Testament. I didn't obey that of the Ten Commandments. I failed in this other. But he canceled the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside. <laughs> this is These are shouting words. Nailing it to the cross the certificate of debt that you owe and the the law itself that we were all in debt to because we did not obey it was nailed to the cross with Christ see our righteousness comes through faith in the one who died and rose again our faith does not is not put in the bible the old testament the 10 commandments because we have failed this. He set aside, nailing it to the cross. And so we obey the old and new Testament now instinctively because the circumcision of our hearts, because of the change in our lives. And we don't have to fall prey to the deceits that are going on. He is, is his first real blast against his unnamed doctrine. And then he talks a little bit about Satan. Uh, He disarmed the rulers and authorities, put them to open shame, and triumphed over them in him or in it, the cross. Manny was talking last week at church about religion and about tradition and about being sure that we are walking in the liberty that we've been given. And you know, I'm from a, a very religious background. I'm from uh, the Episcopal Church, and and uh, it was so important that we would make the sign of the cross at certain times. And um, I have nothing against those uh, traditions, but but for me, as I'm thinking about this disarming of rulers and authorities and putting them to open shame and triumph, you know, when I was in the the Eucharistic service so often. I was the one that would ring a a beautiful big silver bell with a felt-covered striker. And at a certain point, I would ring it once. And then at a certain point, I would ring it once again. But then at a certain point, I would ring it three times with a certain cadence. And you know, all I could think about was, was I ringing the bell right? I... I wasn't catching the significance of the word, the the anointing that might have been in that place because God's word had been preached and and there was worship. I I just I I, I just fell short of of really finding and seeing. And one of the things that happens to you the longer you walk with God is you just become free to obey, you become free. And in whatever setting it is, you find Christ there at church, at home, in the car because of this freedom, because Christ has disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame, triumphing over them in the cross. There's a verse I love in Romans 15, which says, the God of peace will shortly crush Satan under your feet. Satan's authority over us has been abolished. Not only do we not have to live under tradition and all those other things, we today are free from the authority of Satan. Does Satan still attack? Does Satan still tempt and so on? Uh, we still live in this fallen world. And, and yet some people don't believe in, in, in Satan. Satan. Progressive Christianity tends to put that aside. But when you look through the world and when you see merciless, vicious, cruel, harsh treatment of people, when you see what's happening in Syria today under the Assad regime, as one of the news stations uh, was able to see, uh, bring smuggled out pictures of multitudes of tortured people, regular citizens that are thought to be uh, working against their regime. When you look back, of course, to World War II and the Nazis, when you think about what Stalin did in starving 30 million people um, before his, his death, Stalin once said, one person dies, that's a tragedy. Multiple people die, that's statistics. When you see that kind of heartlessness You are seeing Satan. You're seeing the work of him. But as far as the Christian, as we are in Christ, we are not under that kingdom and do not have to live in those ways. And when I look into the church in all the years I've been a Christian and I have seen not perfect churches by any means, But such kindness, openness, warmth, acceptance, loving and receiving men and women equally, loving young and old equally, treasuring life from womb to the tomb, I see the presence of God. So may Satan's reign which one day will end, may he be shortly crushed under our feet as we continue to walk with Christ. Now, there's a second blast here in 16 through 19. And this is where he's going to get into some of what Manny was talking about last week about religion and tradition. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come. These are a shadow of, things, of the things to come. But the substance, the real good stuff, belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you insisting on asceticism, worship of angels, going on in detail about visions puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind, but not... Here it is, not hold, <clears throat> holding fast to the head from whom the whole body, the church. You know, Jesus is the head of the church. We are the body of the church. We are fulfilling uh, the things that the head tells us as the body to do. Nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, the church grows with the growth which is from God. It is so important, by the way, as a pastor to realize The church grows numerically and in quality with a growth that God gives. And when I see wonderful things happening in relationships and outreach and so on in Calvary Monterey here, I thank God for the growth that comes from him. But you hang around with people. Sometimes people get have more religion than Jesus and sometimes, well, people will try to put a trip on you. Well, you can't eat this, or you must eat that, or you, you have to worship on this day, or whatever. And it's religion. There's a, a legalism and a mysticism and asceticism that he, he talks about here, which maybe we haven't experienced. But I have been around people who insist that they've had this vision and visitation, and, and there's people that claim to have gone to heaven and come back. And visions and so on. I believe God gives visions. I believe that there are supernatural experiences. But the interesting thing is the people that talk about these things, or write about these things, they draw so much attention to themselves. Whereas Revelation nineteen ten says, the spirit of Jesus is the substance of prophecy. Prophecy is to point us to Christ, point us to Jesus. He said, oh, you got to hold fast to the head. I've heard so many interesting stories and prophecies and so on that, that Jesus was not mentioned. Books that, that talk about people that have gone to heaven, and you'll notice that the, you, you don't see the throne there. You don't see God there. There's no judgment seat. It's, it's just a place of light and, and f- whatever, and it's not, it, it's not biblical. It's not strictly biblical holding fast to the head, not getting out on visions and, and people who have sensuous minds that, that talk about different things that have happened to them, not holding fast to the head. He just he, he, he says it over and over, hold on to Christ. And he finishes up in 20 to 23. His answer to this whole thing, uh, whatever it was, it was blowing through the city of Colossae. If with Christ... You died to the elemental spirits of the world. So if to Christ, with Christ, you have died to letting society define you, society to give you meaning and direction. If you've died to the the spiritual forces that are not maybe from the Holy Spirit that, that roll through certain parts of the country, and if you've lived around the country, you probably know what I'm talking about. Why as if you were still alive in the world, why as if you were still a person of the world, do you submit to regulations? And here are some regulations. Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Referring to things that all perish as they are used according to human precepts and teachings. Now, Paul, as you know, in Romans 14 and some in 15 talked about this whole thing of, uh, can I eat meat sacrificed to idols? And, and can I drink wine and so on? And, and Paul was so good to teach us about liberty, that we are not supposed to have people telling us, don't handle, don't taste, don't touch, don't drink this, can't have a Coke, can't have a, a burger, or whatever it is. That stuff is not holding to the head. It's, it's traditions, it's things that can divert us and getting off from Christ. These may have an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion or asceticism or severity in the body, but they have no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. It's so important that Paul warns these people that he's struggling for. Remember, he's in the agon, he's in the, the... (laughs) the place of the competition of the games that he keeps raising Christ. I remember as a kid how I saw spiritual things, cultural things uh, sweep into areas. I grew up in Monterey in the 60s. I saw the Monterey Pop Festival and I saw the the countercultural thing here. Uh, When I moved to Maryland and I went to a secular high school, uh, in 1968, you'd go into the, 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 the restroom, the, the men's room, and there would be people smoking cigarettes. There was just so much smoke, you seriously could barely see your way in. That was 1968. By 1970, that was marijuana. And everything changed in the, the atmosphere uh, around me. And it was then that I I received Christ and I was able to navigate my way through the changes in society that were happening and all the different philosophies and diets and and fads and pressures to go here, do that, or be at that party or whatever. And I began slowly to find myself dying to the pressures of the world. And even as a young kid, start to follow Christ. Religion or reality, culture or Christianity? Are we focused on Christ or is there legalism or asceticism or mysticism creeping in? And maybe as you're sitting here, you're also thinking about I wonder if there's a mission call, not only to have a a heavenly perspective, but is God calling me to some sort of service or ministry? Man, the clearer you get on your destiny, your purpose, the finer life is. I'm so glad I got saved in 1971 because I'm sure I would have gone the way of just environmentalism, just saving the planet, which is all good. And I'm sure I would have gotten into drugs and followed the flow of society. This is what he's talking about there. There are these things floating around, my brothers and sisters in a Colossae, and you can't give in to them. Remember what you were taught. Remember the good news. Remember what Epaphras said to you. I'm struggling for you so that you stay clear of all that's happening in society. Not that everything is bad in society. Of course not. Uh, We can enjoy music. We can enjoy the beauty of society. We can enjoy listening to our political leaders and trying to figure out where they're taking us I'm very much involved uh, in this world. But I'm also very much holding on to Christ. And that's what I want to pray right now for you. Would you bow your head with me? And as we finish this study, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this book. It's very stern. It's very direct. It's very blunt. It's very much the agon. It's very much the battle of culture and philosophy and deception. And Lord, your servant here has really, really warned us that everything needs to be put under the lordship of Christ. And so Lord, help us, help us to not be deceived in these final days, in these last days where we hope Christ is coming soon. Would you please, Lord, get all the religion and tradition out of us? Would you remove from us any false teaching or doctrine that, that we may have sidled off into? Would you remind us of our baptism and our the circumcision of our heart and the cleansing of our mind and spirit through faith in Christ? Would you keep us ever close to the church and to the word and to Christ himself? Would you guard us and protect us and our loved ones from all the legalism and mysticism and asceticism? And may we live as free, anointed, spiritual men and women. We just love you today. We are warned. We are sobered. And may we, Lord, continue to walk with and toward you Thanks for the change of our hearts. Thanks for the liberty that we have in Christ, the liberty and freedom to obey. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. And I thank you for joining us for Tuesday Night Bible Study, and I'll see you next week for Colossians chapter 3. Thank you for listening. If you would like more teachings and information about Calvary Monterey, please visit calvary.com. You can also find books, teachings through the Bible, and articles from our lead pastor at nateholdridge.com. Thanks again for tuning in. See you next week.